Well, hello. Uh, good to see you all here today as we continue part two in the series on the life of Paul and the lessons that God has for us in that life. This will be an eight-week sermon series, and I hope it will touch your heart. Today, the title of our message is God Uses Isolation as Part of His Tools to Change Us. Isolation, calling us away from the hubbub of the world, calling us away from the daily activities, calling us away from the things that would clutter our mind and brings us into isolation. It becomes effectively the crucible of isolation. And if you want to see that impact in the greatest personage that you could, you see it with Jesus. With, with At the moment that he was baptized and God announced him effectively, this is my beloved son, he then went into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights away from any connection with anybody else as God spoke to him and prepared him and strengthened him. He did that in isolation. Uh, and so we're going to see how often God does that, that God brings us into isolation for a specific purpose. Uh, and there's no greater proof of that uh, than the life of the Apostle Paul. And so here's, here's what I try to do in my ministry. I don't just make a statement. I give you the evidence of that statement in Scripture because otherwise it's merely my opinion. And frankly, my opinion is worthless. It's what is the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? Uh, and so in this sermon, we're going to focus on the fact that Saul went into the Saudi Arabian desert for three years. Right after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and within a short period of time, probably a week when he was going into synagogues and preaching, and yet God called him away and sent him into isolation into the desert for three years. Uh, and this would not be the first time that God would do this. God would typically, in his patriarchs, bring them into isolation. Another great example of that is uh, with Moses. As you know, Moses was sent 40 years into the desert of Midian, where effectively he became a sheep tender. Uh, and all that time, God was molding his character and preparing him for what would be the greatest call on his life, maybe in the history of the Bible, as he would lead the Jewish people out of captivity. But he spent 40 years in isolation. Why would God do that? Why would God put seemingly great people into isolation? Well, the sermon point that I want to make for you as we begin this message is that God uses the crucible of isolation to change our character, to change our character. Because without that, without getting away from where we are, until we focus on God alone, and when we focus on God alone through the word, through prayer, through study, alone time with God, one-on-one -on -one with God, that's the only way your character can be changed. And so another example of this is David, who was anointed king over Israel when he was 17 years old. And yet for 13 years, he would effectively be in isolation being chased by Saul as his life was threatened, uh, and he would be there hiding out in caves. Why would that be? Well, it would be because God was changing David. He was creating David and molding David into a powerful man of God. And in fact, some of his most uh, poignant psalms were written during that period of time. 
born out of the crucible of solitude and obscurity. Uh, another example of this is Joseph. Joseph was thrown into prison for two years. How about that? It wasn't bad enough that he was sold into slavery by his family, but now he's put into prison and isolated in prison for two years. Well, why would God do that? God did that so that Joseph would be prepared to take on the mantle of the number two position in Egypt, prime minister, coming directly out of the solitude of prison. Do you see how God is? He takes us away from where we are. He calls us into obscurity to, to render us directly, poignantly with him. And at that point, he speaks to our heart and he pours his wisdom into our heart. And so Joseph would emerge in this critical role as, as prime minister of Egypt and in such a way that he would change, be able to salvage the, the, the small remnant of the Jewish people, his family. Elijah also, Elijah also, would be put into isolation at the ravine of Cherith. You remember that? It's not so long ago I preached on that. God put him there to protect him uh, away from the wicked king who wanted to kill him and protect him. He brought him there in isolation in order to prepare him. And there in isolation, he gave him everything that he needed. He gave him food delivered daily by the ravens. And yet it was at the, the ravine of Cherith where Elijah became a powerful man of God. And one other example for you is John the Baptist. Because you see, John the Baptist spent years preaching effectively to stones in the desert. Nobody was out there. And yet here he was called as the, as the forerunner of Christ. And God was forming him and delivering him and creating a character that would serve God mightily in the desert, in solitude. And so these sustained periods of isolation effectively fuel the future of these great servants. You understand? It became the very fuel that would mark the future of each of these great servants. They learned the value of growing deep with God, of going deep in a solitary relationship with God, away from a shallow life that surrounds us so that effectively they would be prepared to minister to others. This is the lesson for us. Now look, God's not going to drag you into the Saudi Arabian desert, okay? All right? But you want to know something? If God was going to use me the way he used Paul, I'd say, take me, Lord. Take me. But that's not the call for us. The call for us is basically to be able to make a determination that there are times in our life where the TV must go off where you cut yourself off from all of the distractions of the world, even being around good people that may distract you, and going into a period where it's one-on-one -on -one with you and the Lord, you in prayer with God, you in prayer with Scripture, you in prayer asking God to change you, to change your character, deliver into your heart what is called to you, what is your call in ministry. This is what this message is about and demonstrating to you that this is what God has done with his patriarchs. Look, we are the sermon point that I would give to you here is we are blinded in our spiritual life by many distractions in the world, and we need to be isolated with the Lord and the Word. Here it is. You need to be isolated with God. 
You need to have that Bible there every day of your life and spend time alone with God and prayer because you may not realize it, but the, the vagaries of this life drag you down. How many times I hear people tell me, oh, I can't watch Fox News anymore. It's just one bad story after another. Of course it's one bad story after another. You live in an evil world. What do you think? It's going to be good stuff that comes over? No, it's not going to be good stuff. You're surrounded by evil in a world controlled by Satan. And so the only way you can be empowered is to be one-on-one with God, isolated. And so the problem today, you see, is that we are blinded by our individual perspective. So many of us in this church are talented uh, and being used in a, in a powerful way and we're efficient. And so we say to ourselves, well, why take a break? I don't need to take a break. I can continue to live my life the way I'm doing. I, I don't have to go into isolation. That's not a message that applies to me. Uh, and see, here's the deal. Everything's fine until all of a sudden, all of a sudden you hit the speed bump. You understand what I mean by the speed bump? The obstacles, the problems, sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're relational, sometimes they're financial, but all of a sudden, all these things will suddenly come into every one of your lives. And here's the thing, here's the thing. If you haven't gone into isolation with God, you're not prepared, you're not empowered, your fuel tank is on empty. You understand? It's on empty and you can't suddenly start to fill it up. You have to prepare for it. And that's what God is speaking to us about, about being prepared for this, uh, being prepared. And so here's the deal with Paul. Within one week, really within one week of his transforming experience on the road to Damascus, uh, he becomes a, a passionate preacher. How about that? One week. One week from being the chief persecutor, now he's in the synagogue, and he's preaching. And nobody ever heard preaching like this. I'd love to hear that. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask for those videotapes. All right? I want those videotapes. You can imagine what it was like as he electrified the synagogues. Uh, and God was preparing, preparing Saul for greater message, that he needed to get personal with Jesus Christ. Uh, and so here's the bottom line. Paul, the sermon point, Paul needed time alone with Jesus. You understand? Paul needed time alone with Jesus. Yes, the greatest evangelist in the history of the world, the smartest man in any room that he would be in, needed time alone with Jesus. He needed to be taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needed to be taught it one-on-one. On one. He needed to be taught Romans, Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians. You think that just came out of his head? All of that was the revealed word of God, and it came to him, I believe, in the three years of isolation in the desert. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, you see it on the screen. Paul writes of that experience in solitude. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And let me stop at that point in the reading. We got to stop trying to please people. You understand? 
I'm not up here trying to please people. I don't put sermons together that make me popular, all right? I'm not trying to put sermons together that are drawing people here. Yes, I understand a lot of people would like kumbayas and marshmallows being toasted and being told, yes, Jesus loves you. I understand that, and I believe every part of it. But you understand the deep, gravitating word of God requires much more than that. It requires a cutting between the soul and spirit, and that's what this message is about. I don't please people. I don't care about people, and that should be your call as you serve God. Don't worry about what people think about you. Don't worry about the fact that they may call you a zealot, a religious zealot. Don't worry about that. You're serving God. Continuing in the reading of verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Do you realize how poignant and significant this statement is? This means that when he was in the desert, he was ministered to one-on-one -on -one by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit poured the gospel of Christ into his heart and into his brain. He didn't get it from being with anybody else. He didn't read it from anybody else. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. But now God took him and God taught him about the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught him alone. What does that mean? That means that when you read Romans, when you read Philippians, when you read Thessalonians, when you read Corinthians, you know that that came directly from God. And so if anybody ever says to you, oh, you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? You can say, I believe the Bible because it came directly from God. It came directly from God. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not, was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. He never went to Jerusalem during those three years. He went into the desert. He didn't go to hear what other disciples had to say during those three years. He went to hear what Jesus had to say as it changed him and conformed him and changed his character and prepared him for what would be the greatest mis uh, mission in the history of the world, the greatest ministry, I believe, in the history of the world, as two-thirds of the New Testament would come from this man's lips uh, and his hand as he wrote it. Uh, and so what you see here is he recognized that he was called by God from this effort from the time he was in his mother's womb. What does that mean? It means that God has a destiny for good on every single one of you. You understand? A destiny of good. Not a destiny for evil, but a destiny for good. From the time you were implanted in your mother's womb. 
And here he says, he testifies to that in every possible way. And so it's so powerful. And so the sermon point here for me is that Paul had to learn not to please men, but to please God alone. You know, that's a very big thing because unfortunately we all want to be loved, right? We all want to be honored. Oh, we want to walk into a room and have everybody go, oh, there they are. They're great. Look at them. They're special. They're holy. They're good people. But here's the thing. I don't care what other people say. And neither should you. You're called for one reason only. You're called to serve God, God alone in every possible way. And notice the phrase that he said there, that he was still trying to please men. Can you imagine that fact that even after he received the Holy Spirit, was blinded, was being used powerfully by God in the synagogues that first week, yet he says he was still trying to please men. Why? Because why not? You know, I was a Jew. I want the Jews to like me. Because if they like me, maybe they'll listen to me. You know, maybe they'll like me and listen to me and think that what I have to say is important. God says, no, no. Your way of doing things is over. Your ways of doing things is over. I've called you to preach to the Gentiles. That's the call of your life. And you're going to have to learn that that's the call of your life. Uh, And so here he is spending three years in the desert, finally coming out. And only after those three years will he sojourn to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks and stay with Peter for 15 days. But he first will spend three years in isolation in the desert. And so as he's alone in the desert for three years, listening to the Lord, getting the gospel of Jesus Christ, his self-inflated, narcissistic attitude melts away. Oh, John, how can you say that he was a narcissist? There's no question he was a narcissist. Anybody that would have conducted himself the way he did, who would go out on these avenging attacks uh, because he believed he had a central view of what Judaism ought to be, was a narcissist. He was a narcissist. Uh, And God was sanding him down. God was letting him know his way was over. He was now going to be a tool of God. He was going to be in the warmth an affirmation of the presence of God. It was in total isolation and obscurity that he learned the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there he met God intimately and deeply. You understand? There he plumbed the power of the gospel. He plumbed the power of the resurrection, the power of the church of God, and the future of the church. Where do you think he got that? It was in the desert that he got it, where God spoke to his heart. That's when he began to understand the true nature of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. Uh, It became a three-year course in isolation and sound doctrine, from which would flow a lifetime of preaching and writing and missionary work in every possible way. It was there that he concluded without a doubt that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It was there that he knew, concluded as a matter of of fundamental doctrine, that Jesus rose from the dead. And when you see this, you see it in the evidence of his writing uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. It's on the screen. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Amen, church? You understand the surpassing revelation of Jesus Christ, that he took me out of this life that I had, that everything that I thought was important, that all the things that I thought lifted me personally up are now trashed, and it's garbage because I recognize that Jesus is all in all. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Do you understand how he could write those words? He could write those words because he spent three years in the desert being taught by Christ. And that's what I want from us. I want us to recognize that when we are alone with God in our prayer life, in our Bible reading, in our study time, alone, one-on-one with God, let him speak to your heart and affirm you and lift you up so that he can use you. Look, he had been so busy in his pharisaical life, so active, so engaged in what he thought was right, uh, advancing Judaism, that he failed to see God. He failed to see God. And, And these same words can be used today to describe what many Christians go through sitting in churches. Now, I'm not uh, condemning people that are involved in committee work or involved in church work, but what I want to say to you is this. So much of our life today can be as consumed by what I will call religious activity, quote-unquote, and the question is, is religious activity promoting the gospel of Christ? Are you getting closer to Jesus, or in fact, are you getting closer to elevating yourself in some religious use? Because God is not cons- is concerned about religion. He's not. He's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your life. He's concerned about your commitment in every possible way. And so what happens is that many of us, thousands of us in churches all over America are going through our walk on fumes, on fumes. We don't have the bedrock of Christ in our life. And then when the obstacles come up, when, when the physical disability comes up or the relationship issue comes up, we're on fumes because we haven't dug deeply. We haven't gotten that relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, here's the thing, church. We're all getting older. And as we're getting older, we're getting closer to the finish line. Let me break it to you. We're all going to die. All right? And so here's the point. As you get older, it's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult, and you need to have a deeper, abiding relationship with him. That's the fuel of your life, and you need to have that fuel as you get alone with the Lord, get alone to him. The sermon point here is that God wants us to be devoted to serving him, not empty activities, serving him. And so during this period of delay and isolation, we learn about the real Saul, the real Saul, the man who God called. It was there that that he had a revelation of the darker side of himself, you see. He saw what he was. He saw the anger and the resentment and the bad temper. uh, And and then he saw that in juxtaposition with the mercy and love of God. Who would think that God could love a persecutor and effectively someone involved in, in inflicting murder in prison on the Christian life and God, plucking him out in mercy and saying, I'm going to use you to advance Christianity. 
And all of this was because of the mercy and love of God. Paul would never forget that. His entire life, he would see that image. God changed the character of Saul in the crucible of the desert. Now, by the time Saul had left the Saudi Arabian desert, the Lord had already begun to change his stubborn will, and he was exceedingly stubborn man. Uh, but the transformation would not be instantaneous. And so he comes back after three years, and he's a different man. He's a different man. This is not the guy that came marching in with a posse on the road to Damascus to see the Christians. Oh, no, it's a different man. And so as he comes back out of the desert, he meets with some disciples from the Damascus area, and he immediately goes back into the synagogue to proclaim Jesus. And all those people who were in the synagogues were astonished and amazed at the ministry of this former Pharisee. Can you imagine being in in the synagogue, knowing this guy, knowing what he had done, and now seeing words and power come out of his mouth from the Holy Spirit in, in a way that they never heard? They never heard Scripture talked about like this. They never had anybody take the Old Testament and tell them exactly what God had done to predict that Jesus would come. They never heard that before. And look at Acts chapter 9, verse 19 on the screen. Not everyone was happy about that. Oh, that's a surprise, huh? Not everyone was happy. I'm sure Satan, number one, was very unhappy. Uh, and in Acts 9, verse 19, you read as follows. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is the central message that we have. Jesus, resurrected from the dead, is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus. I love that. He baffled them by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the call. He proved it to them. Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Does this sound like the same proud man that came in on horseback with papers to throw the Christians into jail? Does this sound like that man who was a leading Pharisee? All of a sudden now he's not coming in on horseback. He's being lowered at night in a basket. What do you think that was like? Here, Paul, get into this basket. We're going to lower you through a hole in the wall so that you can escape. Do you see what happens? And I'm sure at times he had to be saying, God, what are you doing, Lord? You called me. You called me. You gave me your spirit, and now I've got to sneak out at night? Yes, Paul, you have to submit. It's not your will. It's my will. Let me say something about the fact what the world sees when suddenly somebody is in a different role than they expected. And I can testify about this myself. When some of my former associates heard that I had become a pastor, 
uh, I had heard more than once, you? <laughs> you? We saw you in court. You? Yes, me. Because God had called me. And the man that you knew is not the same man. And I'm sure that's what Paul said. You understand? It's bowing to the will of God. And I would say that for you. As you undergo this transformation, there are going to be people in your life who are going to look at you and go, you? You? You're going to church a couple times a week? You're going and doing Bible study? You're reading your book? You? Yes. Yes. Because I had a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Because I know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Saul was amazing people with his remarkable preaching. Can you imagine what that preaching had to be like? The very writer of Romans and Philippians and Corinthians, the very vitality of having the scripture coming into your heart from Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what the power of that was? He was gifted and he was intelligent, and yet he still needed to be prepared by Jesus Christ. And so the fact that you're gifted and you're intelligent is not enough. Your giftedness is only the first step. It's only when you take that giftedness and put it at the altar of God. And you say, God, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But to the extent that you want me, Father, I give it all to you. And over a lifetime of isolation and prayer and study, God will transform you and use you. And you will be amazed at the power of what God will do with your life so that you will walk into places and defend Christ and give the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will baffle. How's that? The same words used there to describe Paul, baffle the opponents. You will baffle Satan. Somebody said that on the day that Paul died and was taken home, there was a celebration in hell. I can believe that. I can believe that when God takes such a great uh, man out of this world. And you know what? That's your job now. Your job is to step up and to be in a lesser extent Paul. All of us. Look, we're not all called to be evangelists. We're not all called to be preachers, but we're called to be disciples. You understand? Disciples in every possible way. Uh, and so here he is, his growing popularity, and it had to be extraordinary, is now viewed as a threat by the, by the Jewish leaders. And so they devised a plan to get rid of him. He's got to go. He's got to die. We've got to get rid of this guy. He's got to be, be removed. And so this fear and humiliation must have humbled him alone. Now think about that. You've given up everything. You've walked away from Judaism. You walked away from your role as a leader and teacher. You're in the desert for three years. I imagine when he walked out of the desert for three years, he probably looked a little haggard, would you think? Three years in the desert? What do you think? He came back with a suntan looking like me after vacation? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. He probably looked wan and haggard and tired and thirsty. Three years in the Saudi Arabian desert. Uh, and so they saw him, uh, and then he walks into the synagogue, and electricity comes out of his body. Oh, are you kidding me? What's going on with this guy? He's got to go. But I imagine that the humiliation of that experience had to be astounding. That when God calls us, and he, and he shows us his way, and that way isn't the way we think it ought to go. 
it can be difficult. And I know that many of you here are going through that right now. God is putting you, all of us, in some ways, through pathways, through isolation, through deserts, and, and much of it is difficult. I want to assure you that Paul is the paradigm for that experience. You're called. You've given Jesus Christ your life. He's there with you. He's going to walk with you right to the end. Don't ever give up. He won't let you give up. Uh, and I want you to know that it is part of God's plan to break an independent spirit and to bring this man into conformity with the will of God. And boy, did he do it. And so the sermon point here for us is that God allows challenges into our lives in order to change us. This is all about changing us. He wants to change you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to conform you like Jesus Christ. And he will do that over a lifetime. Imagine the great Saul of Tarsus, five years earlier, stooping over to be lowered into a basket. I would never, he would never give, give in to that. That would have been beneath him. But this is a way to begin an amazing public ministry that would change the world. And this also speaks to us today about depending on others in ministry. He had to depend on other people in Damascus to save him. He had to de de depend on people who would get him, put him in a basket, find a way to lower him. And that's another lesson that he had to learn because he never relied on anybody else. This guy was the prototypical Lone Ranger, even as he went into Damascus the first time. But God said to him, now you have to learn. You have to be part of a team. You have to be part of working with others. And we're going we're gonna to see that as his life unfolds. And so sermon point here is that Paul had to learn that in weakness, in weakness, God, God could still do everything necessary for success in ministry. So don't think of the fact, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I have this issue. I have this problem that God, God still won't use you. God sees your weakness and in that weakness will strengthen you and make an even more prevailingly strong statement. I told you that the most powerful sermons in my life were delivered in hospital rooms from the beds of dying Christians. Those are the sermons that have impacted my life in a way more than anything I heard ever coming out of a pulpit. And so look, this story makes for good reading, right? But it makes for very hard living. It's an entertaining story, but it's hard living this story. And so in the middle of his first ministry, his life is threatened. He is forced to escape under the cover of night. Uh, and look at how his life had changed in just a short couple of years uh, in some ways. And, uh, and all of this took place after he committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the point of this, folks. Walking with Christ is not a bed of roses. You got that? It's not a bed of roses right? It's not all glory. Take a look at the first 12 guys. How did it work out for them? They were all executed in some way serving God, including Paul, who would be beheaded in Rome in about the year 62 AD. Uh, all of this as they committed their lives to the Lord. But they had a bigger picture, you understand? And this is what I want to convey to you today. I want you to see the bigger picture. Don't just see the measly number of years in front of you now, 80, 90. God bless you, you make it to 100. Oh, yeah, every year becomes so precious and we hold on to it. 
we hold on to it. I want to tell you something. Look at eternity. Look at what God is calling you for eternity. Put those measly human years on the side and think about the great call of your life that God has for you uh, and what it means. Uh, and you see this in the life of Paul, who understood that, that what, that's what Christ did for him. Uh, and so following this experience, Paul travels to Jerusalem. This was his first trip to the city of Jerusalem since his conversion. Now, you would think, would you not? You would think, oh, they're going to be thrilled. They're going to love this guy. This is going to be a love fest, right? Oh, our former persecutor, our tormentor, is now with us. Well, let's read. Let's read Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Uh, it's on the screen. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now the message here is that we need the spirit of Barnabas in this church. And I'm proud to say we have that spirit. And this is, I need more than one Barnabas. I need a hundred Barnabases. I need the kind of people who say, I want to affirm those who are involved in ministry. I want to support them. I want to lift them up. That's what this man did. He pointed the way to Jesus and he lifted up others. And here he did, taking Paul to these apostles who frankly were not that thrilled to meet him. Because what we see here is that the disciples feared Saul. Well, guess what? Why not? They remembered what he did. He threw us into prison. We saw what he did with Stephen, how he was stoned to death. We can't forget that. Barnabas intervenes. Barnabas speaks out for him. Barnabas becomes an advocate. Uh, uh, and the name of Barnabas means son of encouragement. And you know, as we'll study, that he and Barnabas will partner up and become one of the greatest mission teams in the history of the world. Uh, and so we see that. And so as a result of what Barnabas did, Saul is now able to move around freely in Jerusalem, and he speaks freely about Christ. But as successful as Saul was in Jerusalem, God was still not finished preparing him. Now, this is hard to understand because there still was reluctance to Saul. There still was hesitancy with Saul. And so here's the point of this. Uh, he was due for more humbling lessons, more humbling lessons. And what do I mean by that? The disciples learned he had become toxic. The church was being persecuted. He brought so much attention to them that they said, we can't have you around us. We don't want you here. And so what did they do? They packed him up and they sent him back in isolation to Tarsus for about another 10 years. Now think about this. Here you are at the pinnacle of your intellectual life. At this point, he's in his mid to late 30s. He has committed everything to God. He has committed himself to advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody preaches like him. Nobody. Uh, and yet, what happens? Mm. We really don't want you around. We really don't want you around. We'll call you. You don't call us. We'll call you. Now, can you imagine what that had to be like? 
And yet this man willingly submitted himself. He goes into isolation in Tarsus, and we don't hear a word from him for the next 10 years. Wow. God, you're serious. You're serious about conforming us and changing us. And I'm convinced there in Tarsus, he put together the letters to Romans and Philippians and Thessalonians, even though we don't know a word. And he would ultimately become one of the great, great, great apostles. And so here's the message for you, church. Prepare to get isolated. Prepare to go one-on-one with Jesus Christ. Prepare to go alone in order to fully understand the will of God in your life. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the words that you've given us. Lord, I ask you that you conform us to your will, that you change us, that our spirit be changed in the way that you want it, that we bow in submission to you in every way, that we see the life of Saul as a guide in our own lives, as we change in every way to become the kind of people you want us to be. Lord, bless this church. Continue to lift them up and bring them back again next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. God bless you, church. God bless you.